This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black Left perspective. I'm Glenn Ford, along with my co-host, Nellie Bailey. Coming up, the Black is Back Coalition recently marked its 10th year of agitation and organizing, with its annual march on the White House and a national conference in Washington, D.C., And when did Western Europe become wedded to the ideology of white supremacy? A black scholar says the roots of anti-blackness go back to the Middle Ages, when black became synonymous with inferiority and evil in white minds. But first, only two years ago, polls showed Senator Bernie Sanders was the most popular politician in the nation. But these days, if the Democrat-oriented media mention Sanders' presidential campaign at all, it is to malign and disparage him and his sweeping social and economic proposals. Sanders' supporters are calling it the Bernie Blackout. We spoke with noted political analyst Dr. Anthony Montero, a Du Boisian scholar who works closely with the Philadelphia Saturday Free School. Montero says there's a direct connection between corporate media treatment of Sanders and the general crisis of legitimacy afflicting late-stage capitalism. I think you're hitting on a very important point. Your observation is very significant. First of all, a crisis of legitimacy is a crisis where the masses of people or large parts of them no longer accept the authority of major institutions, especially those that relate to governance and the ruling class, ruling society. Those institutions are increasingly rejected or not seen as legitimate in terms of governance and rule by masses of people. That is what we are experiencing. At the center of this, at this moment, is the crisis within both of the political parties, the main political parties, Republican and Democrat. And reading your article, in the current Black Agenda report on the suppression and attempted marginalization of Bernie Sanders by the corporate media suggests, your article suggests, but the objective reality suggests that the ruling class wants to establish its legitimacy once again without the popular mandate of broad sections of people. So they have to marginalize Bernie Sanders and others who represent anti-austerity and a what I would call radical concessions to working people and lower middle class and poor people at this time. They want to return to a form of austerity and Bernie is in opposition to that So they have to make him a non-person, insignificant, 
in spite of what the polling data shows. Well, this is quite serious. About half of the white population, that is, those who support Trump, uh, no longer believe anything that most of the major media say. They don't believe the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, MSNDC, DC. Uh, And uh, a significant part of what's called the Democratic base uh, supporting Bernie Sanders know that there is a Bernie black out. And this is a guy who almost won the nomination in 2016. That's right. In fact, if you go back to 2016, there were two rebellions in the two parties, Trump and Bernie Sanders. You know, I think objectively, their bases, their constituencies represent or have more in common than they don't have in common. This is the irony of the whole of the whole thing, whether Bernie acknowledges it or not. And so they have to throw a wet blanket on this Bernie rebellion because the ruling class is not prepared to concede anything to the masses of people in terms of anti-austerity and redistribution from the top down to the masses of people, be it in health care or relieving student debt or what is not hardly ever talked about, a broad-based poverty or anti-poverty program that would lift something like over 50 million people out of poverty. So they can't give up anything in that regard. I would suggest that Elizabeth Warren coming forward last week with her universal health care program and what it would cost and how she would pay for it is also a move in the direction of Bernie's constituency. In other words, she is vying for that constituency that Bernie developed from 2016 up till now. And it's very clear that the corporate media's fondness for the Warren campaign, which has been evident in the last month and a half, is now putting them in a very untenable position. Absolutely. As Warren identifies even more closely with Bernie. Warren was supposed to fracture the Bernie base, the Bernie constituency, uh, but she seems to have joined it. So how can they continue to favor her? I think that the Bloomberg candidacy (laughs) is a verdict from the oligarchy that they're not down with her either. That's right. No, they're not down with her, especially after she comes out with a price tag and a way to pay for universal health care. Whether or not in a technical sense everything pans out in terms of numbers is not the point. It is the politics of it. And the politics of it says, and I think here she is a bit more forthright than Bernie. What she is saying is that the masses of people, the Democratic Party base, no longer believes in the Democratic Party or the governing class itself, to win them back in the face of what we're calling this legitimacy crisis. You have to make fundamental concessions to them. 
The only time similar to this is the 1930s with Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal. I mean, either it's the New Deal or something that looks like a radical overturning of, of the, the capitalist regime itself. I think this is similar to that. I would venture to say that the crisis is so deep that people like Warren and Bernie are prepared to go beyond the New Deal because this universal health care has implications that go beyond health care because to pay for it, you have to cut the military budget. You have to tax wealth. You have to reverse this long-term trajectory, this neoliberal trajectory of not taxing the corporations and the super wealthy. This means breaking up the wealth in a lot of ways. It means an attack upon big pharma. It means an attack upon the insurance industry. And of course, when you attack big pharma and the insurance industry, you're attacking the very heart of Wall Street, the very heart of finance capital. So I think the implications of this are wide and deep. Hence, Bloomberg and maybe Hillary, and who can say who else to stem the tide, to stem the bleeding uh, that is going on. The ruling class and their media have acknowledged, in fact, that they have a crisis of legitimacy, that the narrative, the corporate narrative, is not believed, but they blame that on the Russians. But in the process... In the process of blaming it on the Russians, I think that they've contributed to that crisis of legitimacy. They have undermined the institution of the presidency, the American electoral system. They have basically come down with a vote of no confidence on their own institutions while blaming Russians. Absolutely. And, and, you know, it's a very interesting, I agree with the way you put it, but I would just add to it. They believe that by fomenting a new Cold War, that they can scare the American people into retreating from their demands for an end to austerity and an end to war, wars of, of intervention and regime change. I mean, this whole Russiagate thing is to scare people. That was the whole meaning of the first Cold War and McCarthyism and anti-communism, to say that anybody that fights for democracy or freedom or peace is a communist, is a Russian agent. Well, they're saying something very similar today. The interesting thing is that the more they say it, the less people believe it. And we've never seen anything like this. This is a political crisis bordering on political chaos and a situation where the regime is unable to govern. The country could descend into ungovernability. I've heard you use the term, the center will not hold. And of course, in U.S. society, what they call the center is the corporate worldview, the corporate Mm -hmm. line. Are you saying that the corporate line no longer holds? What I'm saying, yes, I'm saying that. I'll put it in my own language. What is occurring is that 
the normal processes of compromise between the so-called left and the so-called right within the ruling class, those processes have broken down, are broken, and probably will not be re-established ever again. And this whole idea of the center or the vital center, I get from Arthur Schlesinger, who observed back in the 50s and 60s that the two parties are not that different. And after elections, all of the disputes will be resolved and the ruling class will govern based upon a compromise between the two. I am saying that that is gone. There is no center. The two sides are in a zero-sum game. If I win, you lose, and there is no compromise. But the question for me is, what is driving this? And it is not the ruling class that is driving this. It is the anger and anxieties and fears about the future of the masses of people. And that's why Bernie is so important because he gives voice in a certain way to those marginalized, disenchanted, angry, not just youth, working people. However, and I don't think we can underestimate this, Trump does too. They are both reflecting something very profound in the working class as a whole, and particularly within white workers. I'm talking about Bernie and Trump. So here we are. In terms of the corporate narrative, you and I both understand that one of the missions of the corporate media, maybe its primary mission, is to reach a consensus among the sometimes feuding factions of the rulers and then present that consensus as the truth. And then after that consensus is reached, the feuding parties can get along with the business of governing without disturbing the equilibrium of their of their rule. But with Russiagate, with the corporate media splitting and most of it becoming, in fact, pro-Democrat, the corporate media seem to have dropped all pretenses to what they used to call objectivity, the patina of fairness that they have wrapped around themselves for generations. Can that Humpty Dumpty ever be put back together again? No, no, no. And you know, you see, this is what this is one of the functions of the corporate media, what Noam Chomsky called the manufacturing of consent and the appearance. And that's why the corporate media must appear to be objective. Well, it, it can't. It is failing in carrying out that function of manufacturing consent because very few people especially among the working people and the poor and the lower middle classes and young people, do not see the corporate media as objective, but as a propaganda arm of the dominant sections of the ruling class of this country. And that's part of what is driving the crisis of legitimacy, because the ruling class through its corporate media is unable to manufacture consent. People just don't believe them. We have not been here before, Glenn. This question 
of the modern American state and the need for a vast network of media to control thought, to control the flow of information, to say what is acceptable, and to win tens of millions of people to what they say is America, what America should be, and what is legitimate discourse, and so on and so forth. That is broken. That is broken. And now they're trying to, uh, and I know you don't like Facebook, and I don't like it that much either, but the freedom that many, many people sought through social media is now being shut down on the basis that the Russians have infiltrated it and fake news has taken it over. But we can never, this, I don't think they can ever put this situation back together again. Now, we've talked about the crisis of legitimacy as it related to domestic issues, uh, so-called bread and butter issues and the widespread discontent and disbelief there. But what are the ramifications for U.S. imperial policy globally? Yeah, well, here you have it. You have two, two crises going on at the same time the domestic crisis of legitimacy and the geostrategic crisis, which also is a crisis of legitimacy because increasingly, I don't, we see millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people no longer accepting U.S. ideological, political leadership and are rejecting it. In other words, a rejection of the neoconservative American model of hegemony and unipolar rule. So you have two major crises and then the rise of China, which seemingly presents an alternative to the unipolar dollar-dominated NATO world. I think this this is unbelievable unprecedented and indicates the unraveling and crumbling of the order, the world system that has been in place a little over 70 years now, based upon Western dominance and America's domination of the West. Yes, it seems that President Obama, in his last months in office, recognized the crisis that U.S. imperialism was facing. He went to Germany and spoke all over Europe about the question of the narrative. Who's got the narrative? Who controls it? And the need to defend what he called the Western narrative, really, Mm -hmm. uh, the corporate line. Right. Yes, he did. And that was his coda. That was the end of his presidency, his legacy, so he thought. However, he was one of those who uh, operates within this idea that America's model of governance would be more appealing to people in the world than any other model. But I have made the claim in interviews with you and in other places that for growing numbers of people in the world, perhaps 40% of the world's population, the Chinese model is more appealing. It is certainly more appealing 
to let us say Cubans and Venezuelans and probably to Russians and other people. The American model of neoliberalism is not an effective form of governance and uh, it's being rejected. And the other thing, just quickly, <laughs> it's so deep, it's being rejected at home and on an international scale. In Africa, there is great debate about the fairness of China's massive involvement in the mm -hmm. development of the continent, but virtually no one is juxtaposing that with the American model of development in Africa because no such thing exists. That's right. And no one in the former French colonies are really talking about a future for the Frank-dominated trading and financial system in a form of French-controlled Africa. And people in Africa are looking for a way to get rid of dollar domination. And as you might probably know, for over 10 years now, there have been these summits between China and African nations, usually in Beijing. And recently, there's been a summit between Russia and African nations. I think all that the United States has left of any significance in Africa is AFRICOM, because the Belt and Road and other anti or non-Western arrangements are ascending in Africa. And of course, when you get 54 nations and a billion people, there are going to be many opinions. And of course, China is not perfect, nor is Russia. But what we see objectively is a historic movement away from the West, away from neocolonialism and towards a new arrangement of finance and trade and infrastructure development. That was Du Boisian scholar and Philadelphia free school activist, Dr. Anthony Montero. The Black is Back Coalition for Social Justice, Peace, and Reparations recently celebrated its 10th anniversary with its traditional march on the White House, followed by a national conference. One of those who spoke was Jihad Abdul-Mumit, the chairperson of the National Jericho Movement, which fights for the rights of political prisoners. Abdul-Mumit is himself a former Black Panther Party political prisoner, and the Jericho Movement is a member organization of the Black is Back Coalition. Assalamu alaikum. Again, Uhuru. My name is Jihad Abdul-Mumit. Just want to take a few moments um, because I think I would be doing injustice to all the wonderful, powerful, and strong comments and, and, and points that have been made already today. At 16, I was fortunate enough to be one of the few people to actually want to be something and to become that and become that all their life. And that was a revolutionary. I wanted to become a revolutionary and got myself a gun, and that's what I did. Join the Black Panther Party. As my comrade already mentioned up here, uh, I had a lot of different occupations, but that was my profession. I just want to salute the uh, Black and Black Coalition, uh, which Jericho is, is, is a member of. Yes, sir. And I'm the chairperson of that organization for the last 10 years. It was started by the brother that Sister Ann just represented, Jalil Abdul-Mutakim, and Herman Ferguson, and Safiya Bukhari, both of those two are, yeah. just have passed on to the ancestors. 
And we continue that work. So I just want to make a couple of really kind of fine detail points. Um, Jericho is an organization that deals with supporting and campaigning for the freedom of freedom fighters. It seems like um, today, this age, we're more into uh, different organizations that's being represented. It's almost like specialty things that we do. Yeah. Important as they are. It's almost like before it used to be the doctor coming to your house with a yeah. black bag <laughs> to deal with everything. But now you got the neurologist, you got this person, you got, you know, people do different things. And in this time and age that we live in, that seems like how it is. That's why being a member of the Black is Black Coalition is so important so that we can coalesce and bring together all those fine points that we're doing uh, to be able to address all the many uh, problems and facets of, of this campaign against imperialism and building our own nation and for the sake of humanity. That's right. And I say for the sake of humanity because when we're able to lift, uplift our own people That's right. and bring about our own freedom, right. by all means, that will represent the freedom of all people, peace right. of the people right. of the world. This is important because I just want to paraphrase a quote from Al Haj Malik Al Shabazz that a chicken. <laughs> a chicken cannot produce a duck egg. <laughs> and that analogy is given to say that a chicken cannot produce a duck egg simply because its system was not That's right. designed to produce a duck egg. And by analogy, this system is not designed to produce freedom. That's right. And justice in the politics. Why? Because it wasn't designed to do that. And then El Haj Malik Al Shabazz went on to say that if ever a chicken did, if ever a chicken did produce a duck egg, I'm quite sure that we would all agree that that was a revolutionary chicken. And the Black is Back Coalition, and African People's Socialist Party the Jericho movement and each and every one of us that's standing up and representing our organizations, we take the position of being revolutionaries. And we should be honored and proud and relishing that, but take it vitally serious. Because as we walked down 16th Street, I was with my son, and, and, and I was just making the comments that how a lot of times we can become so familiar with what we do ourselves. Yeah. You know, we chanting, we feeling yeah. the vibes, we're with yeah. one another, we talk about over the dinner table. Yeah. But those that we are addressing take us very serious. Yeah. And they spend the midnight oil plotting and undermining what we're going to do as they have been doing ever since their very existence. Yeah. They take it very serious. And when we talk about revolution and struggle, when Diop gets out and, and talks about confronting the police on the line, I can relate to that. There has to be a safety net for him. Now, that's not something all of us can do, but yesterday in the, in the park I mentioned the fact, every organization represented here, it may not be within your wearable and your, your structure of your organization to deal with political prison. I got that because like I just said, we specialize in different things. But every organization should figure out how at least to give that announcement and that acknowledgement that they exist, yes. at least on your website. Yes! Now, website design may just be a matter of hitting a couple of buttons and when you design the next page that you should mention these things these comrades, these freedom fighters, so that, that their life, because it's the connection. We cannot fight a struggle and, and deny our past. Right. Oh, that's right. That's right. My son is sitting there in the blue. He's 16. He's an expert shooter. <laughs> and I'm not exactly. 
those of us that have it, now killing you with a shotgun. My son is an expert shooter. He's a boxer. You don't say much with his earbuds on all the time. I mean, you know, okay, son, explain this. He'll be like, mm-hmm. But ask, ask him to do a rap, and he'll bust that thing off. He'll, he'll get the moves down and stuff. So when he comes back next time, yeah. he'll have a political rap for us. He sure will. I told him that already. He's up for the challenge. He's not faking. It's like if you can play basketball, somebody said, let's shoot some hoop, you do it. If you can fight, let's do some sparring, you can do it. You won't hesitate. You say, let's do some raps. He'll do it. Right. There's no problem with that. And when I walk down the street with this 16-year-old young man, I feel my back is fully covered. Right. Yeah, so with that, I just wanted to say that once again, um, I'm asking everybody here that's not a member of Black to Back Coalition with your organization that you consider joining. This is powerful. This is so important. I tell the chairman every time I get be blessed to see him that... Um, to hear this articulation, yes. you know, to hear Ajumu uh, um, yeah. right here and Brother Glenn Ford and, and Zaki to explain and articulate, you don't hear that like the chairman said in the beginning, and I'm not patronizing him. No. He's my comrade. <laughs> you know, um, to hear this type of articulation about the, the social, political, and economic climate that we live in and give it the historical context. You're not going to hear that too much anymore. And even myself, as busy as we all are doing some things, we're just doing the work. We don't even hardly sometimes sit and talk about it. We don't have those venues to critically break down why and how we should be running for office and how they make that a strategy as, as opposed to just blindly voting for the Democrat running because, you know, you'd rather have the, the fox rather than the wolf and because maybe the, the bite won't be so bad. After they finish nibbling on you, you still will die. Yeah. So I'm going to close with that, you know, just my, my, my salute to the Black and Black Coalition, to each and every one of you beautiful people here that's doing the work. And yes, I was a member of the uh, Black Panther Party and Black Liberation Army. I got a case for two expropriations um, and got a 43-year sentence and did 23 on that. And I think that... Um, <laughs> I think the most profound, the most thing that angered the judge it seemed like it was not so much that I was a part of this movement <laughs> or anything like that, but I, I did the, the Colin Kaepernick, I wouldn't stand up. <laughs> All right, please. Judge so-and-so coming in. I'll still be sitting there chilling. I think he was more enraged about that than the fact that I was even in the Panther Party. And, and the reason is, the reason is, one, two, three, what's the name? Who do we hate? I despise you, I don't respect your laws, yes. and I don't respect you. Yeah. Right. You're definitely in the crosshairs. <laughs> so much and so fact that I took it for a lousy, what, I don't know, 50 grand? I mean, hey. <laughs> Only thing I wish I did was open the window and blew it out when they was chasing us, and that would have made a scene. <laughs> Going down a highway coming out of Columbus, Ohio. Uh, but um, but that's what it's going to take. So, uh, my dear brother Diop, you know, I know this is the second time meeting you and hearing you talk with so much intensity. You know, I pray the best for you, brother, and I hope the forces rally around you. You know, and um, that you will meet, even though you may not know my son now, that you meet a whole bunch of Abdul Rahmans in your travels and and sister Abdul Rahmanis. I don't know if the brother's still here, but I may just step out the box for a minute That uh, on the question of religion. You know, that's how, how Malik El-Shabazz says, well, that, you know, we come here 
You know, sometimes it's not that we're setting our religion aside. Well, you know, we are bringing ourselves together here. And if we all need a spiritual contact, we follow that. But even amongst the Muslim communities around the world, yeah. you know, if you don't recognize a class struggle, then you will be siding with the oppressor. I don't oh, care if yeah. you say that or how Jesus Christ is our Lord. You still bedfellows with the oppressor? Yes! This makes a distinction. And during the time of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, they couldn't care who he worshipped, how he worshipped. They even made fun of him putting his head in the ground, lifting his butt up to the ceiling. Yeah. They didn't care until yeah. he threw them, them idols out the Kaaba and disrupted their slave trade and cut their money down. Now, it became an issue because now you're not just talking about some rituals. You're talking about changing the fundamental structure of society and dethroning the emperor. And until the Muslims or anybody else get on that page, well, you know, you, 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 you're no help to nobody on the planet. Right. Right. So I just wanted to say this. Right. I say that with all belief. We're going to work with everybody. Love everybody. Uhuru. All power to the people. That was Jihad Abdul Mumit, chairperson of the National Jericho Movement, speaking at a national conference of the Black is Back Coalition in Washington, D.C. In recent decades, scholars have dug much deeper into the historical roots of white supremacy in Western Europe, and it spread throughout the colonized world. Much of that scholarship contends that white supremacy has its roots in the transatlantic slave trade, that a racist ideology was created to justify the plundering of non-white peoples and the enslavement of Africans. But Cord Whitaker, a professor of English at Wellesley College, has written a book that maintains white supremacy goes back to the Middle Ages, centuries before Christopher Columbus. Whitaker's book is titled Black Metaphors, How Modern Racism Emerged from Medieval Race Thinking. Yes, that is correct. We in the 20th and 21st centuries in America tend to trace what I call the black-white racial divide or the black-white racial matrix. We tend to trace that to African slavery in the Americas, the transatlantic slave trade. The fact of the matter is that you can find evidence of linking blackness with the idea of evil and depravity and the demonic going back at least as far as the second century in the writing of a theologian named Tertullian. So it appears actually very early in the world of Roman Christian thought. However, that's not the period I deal with primarily. I deal with the Middle Ages, which are roughly the period from about the year 1000 through the year 1500. And one of the reasons I do that is because of the Crusades. The Crusades, which began in 1095, and were seen as a campaign in order to regain the Holy Land for the Christian world, to take it back from Muslim powers. This campaign, one of the things it did was it animated more travel, more trade, more commerce between Western Europe and the Middle East and North Africa than had been going on in a while. It had never stopped. There had always been such trade, but it really increased the day-to-day -day amount. It increased the amounts of money to be paid. It increased the stakes. 
And when that happened, you start to see this idea that had been present for a long time already, that darkness of skin, that blackness, denoted potential evil. You see this idea become more and more prominent, even though it had been around for a long time. The stakes were changed. The stakes were higher. However, it still was not the racial ideology that we have today, but it was an important step in getting there. So these views on blackness being associated with at least potential evil, did they in fact shape the people who then created the Atlantic slave trade? Absolutely. I'll tell you a story. Part of the reason that I say that it wasn't quite what we think of as race yet is was because there were two competing ideas. There was the idea that blackness did denote evil, that it was associated with demons and whatnot. But there was also the idea that blackness did not denote such things, but in fact was just superficial, didn't matter. What mattered is the state of a person's soul. And that that soul could be, you know, just as clean and crisp and white and holy as Jesus is himself, regardless of the color of a person's skin. That idea was also in the service of the fact that the church, what would become the Roman Catholic Church, wanted to be a global force. And they recognized that in order to do that, they had to have people from all over the world who looked all kinds of different ways be members within that church. So you have these two ideas up against one another and often competing with one another. One of the ways that these ideas came into conflict in the period of the Crusades was around how to most effectively combat the Muslim world and retake the Holy Land. And starting in the 1100s, you have this rumor go around that there is this Christian ruler in the Far East named Prester John. And this Prester John, which really means Bitter John or Priest John, this Prester John operates a holy Christian kingdom that none of us from the Western world have ever been to yet, but it's really, really holy. And if we can just get in contact with them, they will flank the Muslims coming from the other side while we flank them from the West and we'll beat them by coming at them from two fronts. Across the period from about 1100 through 1600, you have Europeans looking for this Prester John and trying to get in touch with him, trying to find him and marshal his forces against Muslims in the Middle East. Prester John moves around because, of course, this is a rumor. So while they're at first looking for him in the Far East, in the Indian subcontinent, in China, etc., or in what is today China, by the 1600s, you actually have the Portuguese sending expeditions into Eastern Africa to look for Prester John. What this does is it really interacts, actually, with the rising idea of kidnapping African people and enslaving them in order to increase wealth in places like Portugal. So on the one hand, to clarify, by the 1600s, you have Portugal looking for this holy Prester John, who would presumably be African at this point, in Africa. 
to help them in an imagined crusade that at this point has long been lost, but the Europeans are still thinking about a lot. On the other hand, since 1444, the Portuguese have also been kidnapping people from the African coast and transporting them into Portugal as slaves in order to increase Portugal's standing financially and socially within Europe. So obviously these two things, these two approaches, these two ideas are certainly in conflict, but that doesn't stop how powerful they become. Yes, by the time of Christopher Columbus's voyage, about 30% of southern Portugal was estimated to consist of black slaves. So is it at this point that blackness goes from being a mark of evil to a badge of inferiority and subjugation? I would say at this point, when we have the quote-unquote discovery of the new world, when Europeans start coming to the new world and see the economic opportunity that's available to them. What happens is the old discourse that blackness, that physical blackness means nothing and that all that really matters is spiritual rectitude, such that what really matters is Christian identity, begins to fall away. And it falls away in favor of the idea that you know, cheap labor is what matters. So the already existent notion that blackness could mean evil and depravity and non-Christianity also feeds into the idea that it means inferiority and enslavability. So it's really the development of the new world in which Christian identity comes to matter less in favor of the vast amounts of money to be made, that blackness takes on something much closer to what we see as the challenge of race and racial ideology in the modern world now. It was also occasioned by the fact that the Roman Catholic Church began to become far less powerful in the European mindset around the same time that Columbus came to the New World. And it was becoming less powerful for a variety of reasons. A lot of them had to do with internal political strife within the church. Let's fast forward to the present, to white attitudes towards blackness in the United States. And you are saying that white folks' greatest fear here in this country anyway, is that blacks will take away their power, the power that they have, that is derived from whiteness being the norm in society. We are in a very interesting period right now in social life and political life, where the demographics of the nation are changing dramatically. Folks of European descent who used to be roundly and incontrovertibly the majority in the U.S. are increasingly becoming not the majority in the U.S. The fastest growing demographic, folks of Latino identity, do not necessarily identify as white, and many of them don't identify as black either. So they're presenting quite a challenge to the old ways that power has been construed in the United States. With the fear of no longer being the majority, the fear of no longer being the norm. This has also been exacerbated by the normalization 
of seeing black folks in power in the U.S., certainly by Barack Obama's presidency, but also the growing number of people of color who sit in other positions of political power, such as in Congress. This fear of no longer being the norm is quite widespread, but also psychologically understandable. People are evolutionarily predisposed to look for norms. Norms are what make the world more easily navigable. And when those norms are challenged, people can become quite resistant and fearful. And that's one of the things we're dealing with these days. It's also norms are also being challenged on the gendered front as we see more and more women occupying positions of power. And we see even everyday women who maybe don't occupy huge positions of power, but who are coming out against some men who do. They're being listened to. So that's where we are. We're in a period where people, people of color, women are being listened to more than before when they speak truth to power. And that's, uh, I think that's one of our greatest challenges right now whether uh, for the United States, whether we as a nation will continue to listen to those who have been historically disempowered and are now speaking out, or whether we will turn to reactionary forces in order to look for and reify and strengthen the old norms that have been the backbone of this country's power structure for a very long time. Well, that's certainly a challenge to white folks who want to embody in themselves the standard by which human beings are measured. And if that standard always is white, then white folks always win. Correct. And if you're used to embodying that standard, And then all of a sudden you don't. The entire world seems askew. Everything seems turned on its head. And that's what some people fear. And some people know they fear that and others don't know where the fear is coming from. They don't know how to analyze the fear or name the fear, but they know there's fear. And that's when things get the most dangerous. But of course, if white folks insist that they are normative, they're not looking for equality. They're looking to be the standard and therefore to be superior. Correct. And if that's the world that you've always been in and you have not paid attention to uh, others who would tell you that's not how the world should be, and you haven't listened to those voices, then you're going to experience rather extreme fear. And of course, fear can always lead to hatred and violence quite quickly. I do argue in my book, however, that the Middle Ages gives us another model. It gives us a model for being willing to be disoriented by other ideas, being willing to be disoriented by the norms of other people. I really do argue that it's a hallmark of modernity. It's a hallmark of the world post-slavery and after the the hard, fast development of race and racism, that in the modern world, we do not question our norms as easily as medieval people questioned their norms. And one of the reasons for that is when you look at a lot of the literature and culture of the Middle Ages, there is a real interest in questioning one's own beliefs, in questioning one's place in the world, in questioning one's place in the universe. 
I often take people to the end of one of the most popular texts written at the end of the Middle Ages, a text called Mandeville's Travels. And at the end of that text, a traveler, the whole text is about a traveler. He leaves England trying to get to Jerusalem, but then he keeps going until he goes around the entire world. And at the end of that text, he's almost home. And he hears people using words that sound similar to his own language. And he sees people doing things, you know, working in the fields in ways that are similar to the ways people do where he comes from. And he's confused. He's confused. He thinks, well, how could this possibly be? You know, I'm very far away from home. Why is everyone acting like they do close to my home? And then he, instead of continuing to go forward, which would have brought him actually home, he turns around and goes back the other way and ends up wandering around for some time more before he eventually really gets home and then realizes his mistake. And what I argue that text shows us is that there's a real interest in the thinkers and writers and and readers as well of the European Middle Ages. There was a real interest in examining other norms, experiencing other norms, and being willing to be confused by them and disoriented by them and changed by them, and perhaps even so changed that you don't recognize your own home when you get back to it, because it's still the same, and you're now wildly different. This is an approach, I argue, we resist with a lot more force in the modern world because we've done so much to try to make our world more easily navigable with ideas like race and with ideas like class and with building superstructures to try to hold people in place within their race or their class. In contemporary political terms, it is quite interesting. I think folks will find it interesting that Europeans, before they made black folks the ultimate evils and inferiors, were putting all kinds of negative labels on Arabs. Yes. To the question of the Crusades, during the period, there was obviously the main concern for the European Christian world was the challenge that the Arab-Muslim world presented. But in much of the writing and the theological writing, as well as the popular literature and even the travel writing of the period, there is very little distinction made between the darkness of Arab skin and the darkness of African skin. There is some distinction, but very little distinction. One of the most popular ways of thinking about skin color in the later Middle Ages was a a form of science called physiognomy. And physiognomy really goes back to classical antiquity, but it is the art or science of judging people's physical characteristics, their physical traits, the size of their nose, the slant of their eyes, the size of their mouth, but also their movements. You know, do they talk with their hands a lot? Do they, are they very restrained when they speak, etc.? And also their skin color. And you take these traits and you link them up with personality characteristics and intellectual characteristics and spiritual characteristics. This became really important to Crusades because most business, most commercial transactions were really done by reputation. 
in many communities. You knew who was trustworthy from experience. You knew who wasn't trustworthy from experience. Or at very least, you could ask around and find out who's trustworthy to do business with and who's not. When you end up in a period of really high, fast, wide-ranging travel in order to do business, you don't necessarily have those tools and you don't necessarily have the time to ask around about who's the best person to trade with if you want to get into this market or that market. So these physiognomies were really convenient because they allowed you to look at them and say, okay, well, now I know this person is probably trustworthy if their nose looks this way, or this person is probably trustworthy if they don't lose their hands too much when they talk. Or this person is probably trustworthy if his skin tone is, and medieval physiognomies in the the Mediterranean world loved this one, if their skin tone is mixed between white, red, and brown. And sometimes they said white, red, brown, and black. So very much a medium skin tone. That was really important for folks going to the Middle East to do business. But it was also important for people already in the Middle East that it really gave honor to the skin tone that was most common for people in the Middle East. When these same physiognomies start getting translated out of languages like Greek and Arabic into Latin and brought into Western and Northern Europe, you see these scribes who are transcribing them start making changes. And some of the changes they make are changes that make them fit their new context. No longer is the skin tone that denotes the best intellectual characteristics a skin tone that is somewhere between white, red, brown, and black. Now it's just a skin tone that is mixed between white and red. This, of course, makes a lot more sense in a northerly European context. You're going to have fewer, not none, but fewer people whose skin tone has more of the brown and black tones in it. And that's it for this edition of Black Agenda Radio. Be sure to visit us at blackagendareport.com, where you will find a new and provocative issue each Wednesday. That's www.blackagendareport.com. It's the place for news, commentary, and analysis from the black left. I'm Nellie Bailey, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Our thanks to the good people at the Progressive Radio Network.